Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, I'm joined by fund manager Gary Robinson, who manages the Bailey Gifford American Fund and the Bailey Gifford US Growth Trust, to discuss whether the dominance of a small number of technology stocks makes the S&P 500 harder to beat. Gary also runs through the four stocks out of the Magnificent Seven that he owns, which are NVIDIA, Amazon, Tesla, and Meta Platforms. The latter holding, formerly called Facebook, was a recent purchase. I started off by asking Gary for his thoughts on the widely held view that the S&P 500 is considered the toughest index for active fund managers to beat, due to it being the most widely researched and followed market? Well, I think what I would agree with is that if you look at the data over the last several decades, that most active managers haven't outperformed the index after fees. So just looking at that, then that would suggest that the S&P 500 is a, a difficult index to beat. But I think when you really get under the surface of that and think about what are the issues that have led to that poor outcome for active management, then it's a little bit more complex than just saying the S&P 500 is, is, is a difficult index to beat. I think one of the reasons why active managers have failed to outperform the S&P 500 over the long term is because a lot of fund managers have given up on trying. So what we've seen in the US active management industry over the last 10, 20 years is a shift away from genuine active management, you know, portfolios that look very different from the index with high active share, to what's been called closet indexing. Your portfolios that look a lot like the index and where the active share is quite low and where underlying investors are paying active management like fees for passive like portfolios. Now that's a recipe for underperformance. If you only have a small difference from the index, but you're paying a high fee for that difference, it's unlikely that you're going to deliver positive outcomes. It's just simple maths. If you want to beat the index, you have to be willing to be different from the index and you have to be willing to accept the volatility that inevitably comes along with that difference. And fewer and fewer managers have been willing to do that. Second thing I'd say on this topic is that I think the S&P 500 index is a difficult index to beat if you're trying to do the same as everyone else. And, and what a lot of managers in the US are trying to do is outperform over the next quarter or over the next year. Yes, US companies are well covered, but when you look at that coverage, that coverage tends to focus on what might happen in the next quarter or what might happen in the next couple of quarters. And there's a massive industry built around trying to predict whether next earning, uh, next quarter's earnings are going to be one or two cents ahead of consensus. And managers buy into stocks and sell out to stocks based on those expectations. There's so many investors that invest that way. I just think there's very limited alpha and another investor coming along and trying to invest that way. I think where there is a lot more potential for alpha is when investors stretch out their time horizon and think about where a company might be and what it might be able to achieve over periods of five to 10 years, because there are actually very few investors in the market who are asking those sorts of questions. And therefore, there's the potential for more insight on the back of those questions. As you mentioned, Gary, to beat the index, you've got to look very differently from it as an active fund manager. And Bailey Gifford, it's very well known for its approach of paying no attention to the composition of stock market indices. And it's also well known for investing in exceptional growth companies and, as you mentioned, thinking long-term. Could you talk us through how Bailey Gifford's American fund differs from the S&P 500 index? And what is the active share percentage on that fund? 
Yeah, so the American fund is different from the index in terms of its level of concentration, first and foremost. So the S&P 500 has 500-ish names. Um, the American fund has typically between 40 and 50 names. The reason we run a relatively concentrated fund is what we're trying to do with this fund is identify and own the exceptional companies in America. Um, and we think that once you get beyond, say, 40 or 50 stocks in the portfolio, all you're really doing if you're diversifying beyond that point is diluting the benefit of owning those exceptional businesses in the name of diversification. And the portfolio just gets weaker and weaker as you add incremental names. So you're getting fewer stocks. We're picking a subset of those index stocks. Another way that the portfolio differs from the index is that this is a growth portfolio. So we're looking for companies that we believe can be significantly bigger in five to 10 years than they are today, either because they're creating new markets or because they have superior products and services that are taking share than existing markets. That's not necessarily the case for all of the stocks in the index. There are some stocks in the index that fall into that category, but there are also other stocks in the index which are in legacy sectors, which are maybe static or maybe even going backwards. And in terms of active share, is that something that you monitor? Do you have a percentage for that figure? Yeah, the, the, the percentage is approximately 90%. I don't have the precise figure um, right now, but it, it's the overlap with the index is relatively low. And of course, over time, stock markets change considerably. Certain companies and sectors become either more or less prominent in terms of their percentage weightings in an index. Now, one area that over the past decade has become a much bigger part of the S&P 500 index is technology stocks with the so-called Magnificent Seven tech giants. So these are the likes of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Nvidia. They now account for nearly 30% of the S&P 500 index. As the performance of the S&P 500 index becomes more reliant on the fortunes of those seven stocks, do you think it makes it harder for active fund managers to beat that index? Yeah. So I'll just pick up on the point about technology stocks to, to begin with. I think we've reached the point in the current sort of technological paradigm where technology has become so ubiquitous and prevalent. I think the idea of a technology sector has almost lost its usefulness because the impact of technology in the economy is so widespread. We own a lot of technology businesses in, in the portfolio, but those businesses have very different sector exposures and very different business models from one another. So like Amazon is a retailer, NVIDIA is a computing company, Tesla is a car company. They're all doing quite different things. They happen to be using technology to reach their customers. What will ultimately drive the outcomes for these businesses is quite different from one another. In terms of the level of concentration of the index, I hear a lot of talk about the Magnificent Seven. I've been in the industry long enough now to remember the fangs and previous periods where we've had a small number of stocks dominating returns. If you've heard from Bailey Gifford enough times, you'll have heard us talk about asymmetry and Bessenbinder and the fact that over the long term, only a small number of stocks really matter. I think what we're seeing play out in the market right now is is what the study that Bessenbinder did um, told us would happen, which is that over long periods of time, market returns are concentrated. Now, the fact that you know you have this sort of seven companies which dominate the index right now, they dominate the index because of how they've done historically. All of these companies have done very well historically. But if you go back 10 years, you know some of the companies that now feature amongst that seven were not big companies. They were not dominant. They were not the leading companies in the index. So you know, I think if you go back 10 years, Tesla's market cap would have been about $30 billion. NVIDIA's market cap would have been about $10 billion. So I think if we fast forward 10 years from now, I don't think we'll be talking about the same Magnificent Seven. 
we might be talking about another collection of businesses, maybe a famous five or an Ocean's Eleven. I don't know how many will be in it, but I think the companies that will comprise that, some of them may come from today's Magnificent Seven, but a lot of them, I suspect, won't come from that. And what we're trying to do is identify the companies that will become the outliers over that 10-year forward-looking period rather than the outliers which have driven the market over the previous 10 years, which have become you know, such a big part of the market. So actually, I think if we, we don't own, you know, for example, Apple in the portfolio, the fact that we don't have as positive a view on that company as we do on the stocks that we own in the portfolio, and, and the fact that it's such a big part of the index is actually a reason why we ought to be able to outperform. In terms of the top 10 holdings for the Bailey Gifford American Fund, you do own four of those seven companies. How does your exposure to those companies differ from the index? Do you actually hold less than the index does as a proportion? Yeah, so, so so we own four of those companies across the whole portfolio. They all happen to be in the top 10, I think. When we're constructing portfolios, we don't use the index as a starting point for constructing the portfolio. What the portfolio represents is the collection of businesses that we think are most attractive today and the proportions that we think are appropriate given their level of attractiveness. And the weightings are a bottom-up output of that process. But on the back of that bottom-up driven process, yes, Today, all four of the magnificent seven stocks that we own are bigger in the portfolio than they are in the index. So that's NVIDIA, Amazon, Tesla, and Meta. And the latter stock that you just mentioned, Meta, I think that was a relatively recent new holding. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, so we we actually held Meta, if you go back three or four years, we held it in the portfolio and we sold out because we were concerned about a few different aspects. One was just relevance, the, the competition from TikTok. Another was increasing regulation, and another was their ability to attract and retain talent. I think on the relevance point, they've proven to be exceptional fast followers again, as they were when they were under threat from Snap with stories, and have built this product Reels, which has gathered a billion users and which is growing quickly, and I think has represented really impressive response to the threat from TikTok. The regulatory risks around Facebook, I think those maybe peaked a few years ago and have actually come off a little bit. And then in terms of the, their ability to attract and retain talent, I think that's improved a lot from where Facebook was, or Meta, sorry, was three or four years ago. So the things that led us to sell a few years ago have all improved. Over and above that, I think the emergence of generative AI is actually potentially quite a positive thing for Meta from a couple of different standpoints. One is just that, you know, in the back of the um, changes that Apple made that made it difficult for advertisers to reach customers. The companies that are involved in the advertising industry have had to create workarounds to this issue. And Meta, we believe the company that's got the skill in AI and and the resources necessarily to do that most effectively. And so we think that actually the IDFA changes um, and Meta's response have probably served to strengthen its competitive position uh, relative to other um, advertising competitors. And then secondly, I think generative AI has got the potential to actually supercharge its business. You've already seen the benefits of that in the way that it's helping to drive up engagement on the platform by serving better content to consumers and keeping them on these platforms for longer. And I think that we're just at the beginning of that. So it's a very strong business, which we think is getting stronger and which is still relatively early on in its growth opportunity. And in terms of the three companies from the Magnificent Seven that you don't own, you've already mentioned Apple. The other two are Alphabet and Microsoft. Could you run us through briefly why you don't own any of those companies? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a slight sort of cop-out answer and then we can get into the detail if you want. But the, the, the cop-out answer is just that um, you know, when you run a concentrated portfolio like this, 
when you don't own something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't like it. It's more that they don't quite meet the bar. And, and the bar for inclusion in this portfolio is pretty high, given how concentrated it is. Actually, we, hit, we have a formal hurdle rate that we look to when we're assessing whether a company ought to be held in the portfolio. And, and what we're looking for is at least a two and a half times return over the next five years with a reasonable level of confidence in that, that outcome. And the, the challenge we've had with those three names is just getting to that two and a half X return. I don't think it's a coincidence that all of the Magnificent Seven, those three that you mentioned, Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet, the three we don't own, also happen to be the three with the largest market caps of the seven companies. Suppose the one that stands out for me, just you know, from conversations I have with full managers and interviews, is very regularly see Microsoft in a top ten or even as a top holding. So I think, you know, all those stocks they are widely owned, but for me that was the one that that stood out really. Have you got any more thoughts on Microsoft? Yeah, I mean it's a very good business. It's a very strong business. I think it's a much better managed business than it was a decade ago. You know, we've been wrong not to own it, frankly. It's been a wonderful performer. A lot of that historic performance is, you know, the operational progress of the business has been very impressive. But a lot of that historic performance has come about on the back of uh, revaluation of the stock. Um, I remember debating Microsoft about a decade or so ago when it was trading on 10 times earnings, not long after Ballmer had just bought Nokia and then left the business before everyone knew how great a manager Nadella was. And so, so you've had that valuation tailwind. I don't think that's going to repeat. So you're more reliant um, on the fundamentals driving growth from here. And I think the fundamentals look strong, but whether they're strong enough to meet that two and a half times threshold is, is another question. Um, I think Microsoft's been revalued in this way because it's become viewed as a reliable grower by the market and has attracted a premium multiple because of that. And you take a company like Meta, I don't think the perceptions around Meta have changed to that extent yet. And it trades on a significantly lower multiple than Microsoft right now. But I think the potential is there for Meta to prove itself to be another one of these dependable, reliable growers with financial discipline. And if it does that, then you've got the potential for valuation actually to be a tailwind in that case. And so that's how I would differentiate between the two of those. Moving away from technology stocks, I was wondering if you could highlight other areas or sectors of the portfolio you know, where you are investing very differently compared to the index, where you are finding America's most exciting growth companies? Yeah, so most of the companies that we own in the portfolio are using technology in some way to either develop superior products or to reach their customers. But these companies are addressing a really broad range of sectors and are doing so with very different business models from one another. One of the ways that we look at the portfolio is we group the companies in the portfolio around the growth, secular growth trends that they're exposed to. So maybe just go through the top three or four of those to, to give you a sense for the shape of the portfolio. So the biggest one is the future of commerce. That's where we have most companies in the portfolio exposed to that trend. Um, and the big holdings in that area of the portfolio are companies like Shopify, um, which provides tools for entrepreneurs to create online businesses. Amazon, which everyone knows, and DoorDash, the restaurant delivery business. The next biggest exposure for us would be the future of the enterprise or, or cloud, as it's called. And, and we have exposure to that trend through companies like um, Workday, the HR and financial software company, Snowflake, the cloud-based data warehouse company, and Samsara, the equipment monitoring company. Then the next biggest exposure for us is the battle for our attention, call it, or entertainment. And then there you've got, in that cluster, you've got companies like Netflix, and Meta would fall under that heading, 
and Roblox. Um, and then the fourth biggest exposure in the portfolio is innovative healthcare, future of healthcare. And, and there we have companies like Moderna, the company that produced the vaccine, but which has got much broader potential. Uh, Denali Therapeutics, which is a neurodegeneration company looking to develop drugs for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And 10x genomics, which provides tools so that scientists can study the cell in a very granular, high-resolution way. I wanted to um, end the podcast by chatting through recent performance. So, you know, as we mentioned, you know, funds invest very differently from the index. Investors should get a different outcome from the index due to that. And as you mentioned, the active share on the portfolio is around ninety percent. Now, of course, over time, particularly over short periods, fund performance ebbs and flows. Could you talk us through why the past three years in particular has been a very challenging period for the fund? And the last time I looked at the statistics, which was last week, the fund was down around 40% versus an average gain of around 30% for the average North American fund. Could you talk us through that? Yeah, performance has been very disappointing over the last three years. So The last three years to the end of 2023 incorporates the post-COVID years, or mostly post-COVID years, so 2021, 2022, and 2023. The prior year, 2020, was a very, very strong year for performance on the back of lockdown and the really positive impact that that had on a lot of digitally orientated businesses that were able to continue running when the economy was shut down, companies in the e-commerce sector or companies that deliver digital entertainment. Um, but yes, the last three years have been very, very tough. There are two major headwinds to call out there. First is just the rise in interest rates. So post-COVID, there was a lot of supply chain disruption on the supply side. And at the same time as that, we had stimulus spending on the demand side. So that when the economy did open back up again, what we saw was significant inflation in the economy for the first time in many, many years. The Fed were behind the curve on that and had to rush to sort of catch up. And we had one of the fastest rises in interest rates that we've seen. And Long duration assets were disproportionately impacted by that. So that rise in interest rates drove up the discount rate and assets with cash flows far out in the future are more sensitive to rising discount rates than those with their cash flows near to today. And as a high growth investor, you know, the sorts of businesses that we invest in, their cash flows tend to be far out in the future. And so the companies that we owned were much more sensitive to that rise in discount rates than the average company in the market. And so we saw a big step down in valuations for those companies that we owned. The second piece was the um, volatility, demand volatility created by COVID. There was a big spike in demand for a lot of the companies in our portfolio on the back of COVID. And then when the economy opened up again, that demand fell away. And many of the companies had invested in anticipation of that demand remaining. The narrative which we bought into, to be completely frank, was that habits had been broken during the pandemic. And people weren't going to go back to the old way of doing things. But what happened was people did go back to the old way. And these companies that had invested in anticipation of strong demand ended up with inappropriately high cost bases. Their sales were under pressure, the margins were under pressure. And that combined with the valuation pressure caused by interest rates uh, going up led to the significant underperformance for the portfolio. What I would say is that it feels to me like both of those headwinds are largely behind us now. You know, I think interest rates have at the very least peaked um, and may even be coming down. So stability on valuations are perhaps even a tailwind. And then a lot of the COVID-related demand gyrations have now worked their way out of the economy. And what that means is that hopefully from here, you know, as we move forward, the, the fundamental operational progress of companies we own should be able to shine through in a way that it hasn't been able to shine through over the last few years. 
And this has started to come through in terms of fund performance as well, because over the past year, the fund's up 29% versus the average 16%. Is there any individual drivers that you would pick out, as well as the improvement in the macroeconomic backdrop if interest rates look like they've peaked? I assume those four technology companies that you've talked through on the podcast, they've all held performance, particularly in 2023. Yeah, um, it's been actually been pretty broad based. So yes, we have, I think at least three of them have. And because we only bought Facebook about halfway through the year, sorry, Meta, but of, of the top 10 biggest contributors to performance in, in, in the last year or in the year to the end of December, I think the three of the top 10 were out of that four that fall into the Magnificent Seven and then seven of the top 10 weren't. Um, so the biggest positive contributor was Shopify. Um, and then NVIDIA, um, and then the Trade Desk, which is an advertising platform. That was a big contributor to performance for us. Duolingo was a big contributor to performance for us, the uh, online language learning app. That's been performing phenomenally well operationally. So DoorDash, that I mentioned earlier, the um, food delivery business, the restaurant delivery business, was another big positive contributor to performance. So it's actually pretty broad-based, and there aren't any trends that I'd really call out across those. As I mentioned, that these companies are exposed to different structural growth drivers. It's just there are a lot of structural growth drivers at play in the market today. And I think those growth drivers have been playing out over the last four years. It's just that um, some of that tailwind is, has been masked by the volatility that was created by COVID and the volatility in valuations that was created by inflation and the rise in interest rates that's had to come through in order to stem that rise in inflation. My thanks to Gary and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please follow the show in your podcast app and please do tell a friend about it. And if you get a chance, it'd be great if you could leave us a review or a rating in your podcast app too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you like to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. And in the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.